What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. A question that I am often asked is, do I ever want to write a musical since I've written a lot of plays, and have I ever written a musical? And the answer to both questions is yes. Writing the book to a musical is a very unique situation, and so I thought I would talk a little bit about musicals this week on Hollywood and Levine. So I always wanted to write the book to a musical. I could never write the music because I don't know how. Uh, so I came up with an idea, and this was you know probably close to 20 years ago, came up with an idea basically about the New York music scene in the early 60s. It's kind of territory that Carole King has covered in the musical Beautiful, but this was before Carole King. And so I came up with the idea for the book, and I needed a musical collaborator. And so I turned to Ellie Greenwich, and Ellie Greenwich wrote a lot of great hits in the early 60s, along with her partner, Jeff Barry. But uh, among the songs that she wrote, Be My Baby, To Do Run Run, Then He Kissed Me, River Deep Mountain High, Leader of the Pack, I Can Hear Music, her catalog goes on and on and on. So anyway, we were collaborating on this project. She was coming up with songs and I was coming up with the story. And then tragically, she passed away. And that pretty much put the kibosh on that project. A couple of years later, I met Janet Brenner, who was writing a book for a musical called The 60s Project. And she was looking for a collaborator I knew that they were going to go into production that summer at the Goodspeed Theater in Connecticut. So I thought, yeah, okay, here's a chance to actually work on a musical that's going to get made. And so we spent uh, a number of months collaborating, which was really kind of an interesting collaboration because she lived in New York and I lived in L.A. But we finally put the thing together and went to Connecticut we cast this project. Uh, Andrew Reynolds was our star. He later went on to stardom with the Book of Mormon. He was in the TV series Girls. He had a series on NBC. He's done a lot of other Broadway shows. He's really become quite the star. And the musical was directed 
by Richard Maltby Jr., who had won a Tony for Ain't Misbehavin'. So we had some big guns going for this. We had a pretty big cast, something like 21. I think there were 10 boys and 10 girls and one adult. And it was kind of a uh, jukebox musical about the 60s. But it was really fun, and I was really proud of it, and went off to Connecticut and watched the rehearsal and the production of the musical. And I also kept notes at the time and put together a list of things I learned writing my first musical. And that is what I wish to share with you now. Take notes, by the way. The director must encourage everybody to share ideas, and he must then discard 80% of them, especially the ones from the prop guy who has taken the liberty of writing new songs. You will need six weeks to rehearse a musical, but if you have six weeks, you'll need eight. If the choreographer had her way... Seven of the eight hours of rehearsal every day would be devoted to dance numbers. If the music director had his way, those same seven hours would be devoted to teaching and practicing the music. If the book writer, i.e. me, had his way, scene work would fill the day. And if the director had his way, it would be a one-woman show with Bernadette Peters who could do it all in five hours. One change, no matter how small, is like pulling a string on Penelope's tapestry. It affects everything. If the music director wants to add a bar, one bar in a song, well, the choreographer will want to reblock the entire dance number. If the book writer, again, i.e. me, changes one line... It affects the underscoring, the next cue, the choreography, the lighting, the sound, background visuals, upcoming costume changes, transitions into the next scene, and the future of the American musical theater. So it better be a good new line. Here's one thing I learned. If there is a fight scene or even fight moment... There has to be a daily fight rehearsal before the performance. But if you are doing West Side Story, you are allowed to rehearse without the switchblades. Wireless mics that stick out of cast members' foreheads produce better sound. And the good news is they're not noticeable and distracting at all beyond the 50th row. The cast elects an equity deputy. And his job is to snitch behind the director's back if an equity rule is broken. Now, there are many, many rules, and they include looking at an actor with an expression that might hurt his feelings. To learn even one dance number, I would need to practice eight hours a day for six months, at which time maybe... I would be able to do the whole damn thing without elbowing somebody in the face. These kids get it down in like six minutes. Here's one thing you need in any musical. You need a good drummer. 
trust me, a real good drummer. If you are going to a musical, go to a nighttime performance. Do not go to the matinee. They hold back a little at the matinee, especially if it's like a a Wednesday matinee and then they're going to perform the same show later on that night. (laughs) And, And it happens to be a very challenging, ambitious show. They're going to be walking through it in the matinee. Now, they'll say they're not, of course, but they are. When your wife or your girlfriend says they need 45 minutes to change their clothes, just know it can be done in as little as 10 seconds. Every performer comes from a dysfunctional family, but thanks them profusely in their Playbill bio. And speaking of the Playbill bios, most people will pad them because you get to list what you want included in the Playbill. So everybody lists every credit since they played a kitten in grammar school. But my favorite Playbill bio remains the one written by Jerry Belson. Now, Jerry Belson was a great TV writer at one time he was partners with Gary Marshall, and they wrote a lot of great episodes of The Dick Van Dyke Show together and The Odd Couple. And uh, Jerry Belson was truly one of the funnier people that I've ever met. Anyway, he wrote a 1975 movie called Smile, which is about a beauty pageant in Bakersfield. Find it. It's very, very funny. Well, anyway, it got turned into a musical, And so Jerry, in his Playbill bio, wrote only this. Smile fulfills a lifelong dream for Mr. Belson to get paid twice for the same script. Hard to beat that. During a performance, there are nine people walking around backstage with headsets. No one knows who they are or what they're doing. A good running time including a 15-minute intermission, is two hours and 20 minutes. You know, there's a saying on Broadway, take out 20 minutes and the show runs two more years. Okay, you got to be ruthless, just like you have to be with screenplays and stage plays and everything else. But 2.20 is kind of the ideal running time with a 15-minute intermission. And here is a truism of musicals. The song that you love the most before going into rehearsal is the song that you need to cut. No two people have the same script. This was maddening because, you know, you're always fixing scripts, but it's not like everyone is getting distributed blue pages today and pink pages tomorrow the way we do it in television. A lot of people are just kind of marking their scripts or A pages are being distributed to people. So after about a week, nobody is working off the same script. It's crazy. The Teamsters are pansies compared to the Equity Union. Actors will tell you it is very hard to be sung to. Okay, if you're a woman, have you ever had somebody sing to you, serenade you? 
It's awkward, isn't it? Off stage, it's even harder. When you're in the orchestra section, don't think that the cast can't see you. They can. And they talk to each other at intermission about you. So if you're going to text or you're going to be Pee Wee Herman, you're going to have an audience. It is always better to say it in a song rather than dialogue, but those few lines of dialogue can galvanize the entire story. Since there is limited rehearsal time, once the show opens, it can take up to a week to put in some changes. Now, you have to prioritize fixes based on how needed they are, how long will it take to implement. And basically what that means is every night you sit there and watch the performance and you take notes. And every night you're taking the same notes because due to all of the equity restrictions, you're not allowed to implement them. This in particular drove me out of my mind because, again, I'm used to television or even playwriting where a line doesn't work, you just fix it. If a joke didn't work on the stage, you don't send the actor out the next seven nights to do the same clam. No, you go through and you fix it. Well, you can't do that. In fact, if you want to substitute a line you have to get permission from the actor as to whether or not he will let you put in the new line. Drove me out of my mind. Casting decisions are still the most important. Everything else can be fixed, except if you want to do, say, C-SPAN the musical, yeah, that idea might kill it. Actors are not allowed to talk to conductors. Okay, there is a very strict chain of command. Book writers are not allowed to talk to anybody. Here's something I hadn't thought of before doing a musical, but it's true. Actors need to yell out their dialogue. Not just speak loudly, but yell. Most of the time, musicals are done in large arenas. You don't have musicals that take place in 30-seat black box theaters, generally because there's more people in the musical than will hold the audience. But when you are doing a musical, and it's just one of those creative licenses that the audience will allow, you pretty much have to project and almost yell. And even if the line is, psst, let me tell you a secret. Okay? Yell it. Because only Lewis Black can talk in his regular speaking voice. The guard at every stage door is named Pops. And finally, when it works... A musical can be more than entertaining. It can be 
thrilling. There's an electricity, a magic that is so powerful that it transcends whatever's happening on stage. Yes, it's a tall order and it's rarely achieved, but that's the goal. And if you don't hang yourself in a hotel room in New Haven, it can be quite exciting. It just occurred to me that uh, the 60s project was not the first musical that I ever co-wrote. That came way back in 1975, I believe. And it was when I was a member of the Army Reserves. Now, I'm going to tell you this story, and I swear to you, it is absolutely true. You're going to hear it, and you're going to go, come on, come on. But honestly, this is absolutely true. I was in the Army Reserves, and I was in an Armed Forces Radio Reserve Unit. Okay, if we ever got called up, it would be good morning, Vietnam. We would have meetings once a month, and you would have to go down to the armory, and you would have to wear your short hair wig, and basically we did nothing because there was no radio station to run. So we sat around and did nothing. And also, every summer you had to go away for two weeks of summer camp. One year we went to Fort Carson, Colorado, They really didn't have a radio station on the base, so it was nothing to do. But here's where it gets really, really weird. There was a general in Washington who was very concerned that reservists were not re-enlisting, that when their six years of service was up, they fled, and they wanted to keep reservists. And what they had to offer was if you stayed in for 20 years, you got a lifelong pension. (laughs) Okay, but, you know, good luck. Because at any time you could be called up. All right. And the Vietnam War was ending, but it was still kind of hanging over our heads. And you don't know what new conflict the country could find itself in. And you just don't want to be in the reserves when that happens. Ask a lot of people from Desert Storm what that was like. So anyway, this general said, we have to find a way to get to reservists and entice them to re-enlist. Here's what he came up with. A musical. We'll put on a musical and invite reservists and they'll see this musical and want to (laughs) re-enlist. Think about the logic of that for a moment, okay? This is why it was so easy to write MASH, because the Army would do stupid fucking things like this. Anyway, we get to Fort Carson, Colorado, and we are told that our mission is to write, rehearse, stage, and perform a musical on the theme of re-enlistment 
and that this general would be flying out a week from Thursday to see the show. Okay, so I was one of a few writers. There was me, and actually the guy who I partnered with was Joel Siegel. Remember Joel Siegel used to be on Good Morning America on ABC? He was like the movie and entertainment critic. Sadly, he passed away very young, but he was in the unit, and he and I were writing sketches and song parodies, and also a very funny guy by the name of Bob Harrop was writing as well. So we put this thing together, and for the music, we decided to just take West Side Story and bastardize those songs. Case in point was Maria. We changed that to Re-Up. So we would be singing, Re-Up, I just met a soldier who re-upped. Oh, God. I, I can see you out there shaking your head. What were these idiots thinking? So we write this, and we stage it. We get a few guys from the unit to participate. Uh, me, my partner, David Isaacs, who had just joined the unit, I enlisted him in this. And the general flies out. So now it is the night of the performance. The base gets a lot of its soldiers to come and watch this. Uh, They probably were forced to. We had a pretty full house. There was something like two, three hundred (laughs) soldiers. And we get up on stage and perform this musical. Did you ever see the movie, The Producers, the first one, the original one? When they do the springtime for Hitler scene, the biggest laughs are when they cut to the audience and you see them absolutely gobsmacked. I mean, everybody is just sitting there with their jaws on the ground. They can't believe what they are seeing. They, they can't fathom how terrible this is. Well, that's what we were met with. These guys in the audience were just dumbfounded. What the fuck were we doing up there? So the show ends, and we're backstage, and we figure, well, okay, this is a story we can tell, and we were able to kill summer camp, and the general comes back to meet us. And the general is thrilled. The general thought it was unbelievably great. Again, welcome to the army. And so for the next two years, instead of once a month having to go to the armory on Saturday and Sunday and put on our uniform and our short-haired wigs, because we all had big afros or jufros back in those days, we would go, they would book us at a different unit somewhere up the West Coast. So an example, wearing our civilian clothes, 
we would go to the airport and fly commercial up to San Francisco. They would put us, this was Saturday, they would put us up in a nice hotel. We'd have a nice per diem. We'd have a nice dinner. Sunday morning, we would put on our uniforms and we would go to whatever armory or base was nearby and we would do this show. Show was about an hour, hour and a half. And again, every audience that we performed this for had that same gobsmacked look. I don't think in two years we got one person to re-enlist. But we got a chance to go up to San Francisco. We went down to San Diego. We went to Phoenix. I think we went up to Portland a couple of times. These were like great trips. And usually once every other month, the show would be somewhere in the Southern California area. And so for those days, we didn't have to do anything on Saturday. You just get up early Sunday morning and put on your uniform and drive to Long Beach or drive to Silmar. You do your shtick and you change out of your army uniforms into your civvies and get back in the car at 1130 and you are done for the month. And so that is my first experience writing a musical. Oddly enough, it did not get to Broadway. You'll be humming re-up all day long. <laughs> re-up. I just met a private who re-upped. God, what were we thinking? Anyway, that will do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, and John Wolfert. If you want to get in touch with me, I have an email address, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Again, that's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. And yes, I will write you back. You can follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine. I'm also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. And if you could uh, see your way to subscribing to this podcast, I would appreciate it. That'll do it, and we'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.